Hello, I double H's. I'm currently huddled in bed, wearing one of those microwavable bean bags your gran likes just to stay warm. For non-South African listeners, uh, very cold is obviously a relative term here. We are not equatorial Africa. The clue is in the south of South Africa, but we do live in a lovely temperate band for most of the year. The problem is that when it does get cold, our houses are not built for it. Double glazing is for rich folk and central heating is basically unheard of. Yes, so I'm in my bedroom, which is as cold as a morgue, recording here um, instead of from the Harry Potter room. So I apologize in advance from the occasional teeth chattering. That's me, not the dogs this time. I have a short, exciting announcement before we get into the meat of the story today. Well, I mean, actually, I have two. And the first is, well, I'm one of two Pfizer shots down. My personal 5G signal hasn't kicked in yet, but fingers crossed. More importantly, though, the much more exciting announcement is that I want to say hi and give a huge thanks to my first two patrons. Yes, I got my Patreon page up a few days ago, and two of my favorite people in the world have already signed up to support me turning my new baby podcast into a slightly more grown-up baby podcast, like a Toddcast or something. I'm hoping that as more patrons and advertisers come on board, I will be able to give you so much more content, because I already have about five new features planned, and I just need the time and space to make them happen. Anyway, I digress. As usual, (laughs) Megan and Dave, my first two patrons, I love your faces and I definitely owe you a drink and the hugest of hugs soon when hugging is a thing again. Uh, Because Megan is my first H for Hero tier member, she gets to pick a crime for me to cover here. She's already chosen one and it's a hell of a case. The Mordemulo monster himself, Johan Kotzer. So I'll get cracking on that research for you, Megan. If anyone else wants to join the Patreon party, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash it happened here. If you can't support the show in that way, that's totally cool. Just maybe come hang out with us on social media. Or maybe you're just currently hitting the skip forward button repeatedly so that I can get on with it. That's cool. You do you, boo. I'm just thrilled that you're out there listening. Today and next week, actually, we find ourselves in the town of Krugersdorp. Dorp is the Afrikaans word for town, so Krugersdorp is literally Krugerstown. This is not a two-part episode in the strictest sense. I will get through the whole case uh, for today's episode, but there are a lot of links and overlaps between this episode and the next one, so it's a two-parter in that sense. The other thing we're going to get stuck into today and next week is the weird and wacky world of occult-associated crime, as well as the phenomenon known as the Satanic Panic, which was a thing here in SA, even though it's more traditionally associated with the US. I have my theories on why this moral panic takes such a stronghold in both countries, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Before we go any further, this is episode 7 Devil in the Dorp, Samurai Killer Mornay Haramsa. 
Krugersdorp is a mining town directly west of Johannesburg. And since Joburg is one of those sprawling metropoles that I think I've already told you is slowly eating its neighbours, there is very little divide between Krugersdorp and Joburg. A lot of people live in Krugersdorp and commute into Joburg for work, but it's still very much a different city with a very different vibe. As you drive west, the big office buildings recede to be replaced at first with these massive gated residential estates in a style called faux Tuscan. And then in Krugersdorp itself, it's mostly single-story face-brick homes with low garden walls. We turn onto Skumman Street to find Nick Diedrich's Technical High School. If you are a South African, you are currently laughing at my pronunciation of that school name. And I have to tell you, I have been practicing all week and I got several friends to send me voice notes and I just can't wrap my tongue around that. But this is where we are. It's Monday morning, August 18th, 2008. The bell has just rung for morning assembly. So all the students in their white shirts and school ties are making their way towards the hall in groups, chatting among themselves. Two 16-year-old boys, Jacques Pretorius and his friend, J.C. Wellman, are walking in together. They had met up at their usual time and spot, 7am, at the tree near the school's main gate. From there, they went past the tuck shop and Jacques bought a packet of chips which they shared on the stairs next to the little kiosk before turning towards the hall for assembly. They didn't really have any warning. Some kids in the vicinity said they heard someone say, want to see something cool? Just before that someone swung a 60-centimeter ornamental sword at Jacques, catching him at the neck. JC says he first thought it was a joke, someone playing silly buggers, until he saw the blood bubbling out of Jacques' neck. His friend fell to the ground, while all around them kids began to scream and run. Someone yelled, watch out. The person holding the sword was still waving it around. He was a slight figure in school uniform, but wearing a creepy mask that completely obscured his face. He turned on another nearby student, 18-year-old Stefan Boas, slashing at his leg and then his head, leaving a deep gash on the left side of his skull. Stefan says to him, why are you doing this? But the kid in the mask doesn't answer. Two staff members, groundskeepers at the school, hear the commotion and come running. In a moment of instinctive bravery, they make to tackle the attacker, still brandishing his sword. 43-year-old Lesiba Samuel Namamela catches the blade in the elbow, and 26-year-old Chiamo Joseph Kodisang is sliced on the face. It's a deep cut, almost severing his ear. The masked boy then turns around and walks away just a little bit, takes a seat in the courtyard garden, and pushes the sword into the ground before sort of zoning out. He's still there when two teachers run up. As they get to him, he pulls off the mask and looks up, asking, what happened? He doesn't put up a fight when they lead him away to the principal's office to await the arrival of the police. Meanwhile, three people are injured and bleeding, 
and 16-year-old Jacques has bled out where he fell, dying on the spot while his friend JC sits helplessly at his side. It's 7.45 a.m. For Jacques and JC, the day started off as usual, but for Monet, the kid with the sword, this had been the culmination of a plan. I'm not saying it was a good plan, but this wasn't an impulsive decision. In fact, Monet had been trying to talk his friends into doing something that would make them, quote, memorable for a while. Monet Haramsa was not a typical rebellious teen, or what his teachers might have called a troublemaker. But he was clearly troubled. This just sort of flew under most people's radar because he was generally reserved and quiet, described as well-mannered. He did, however, have a preference for the dark and macabre. He was openly atheist, which I suspect would have already set him apart in the typical Krugersdorp Afrikaans school. I'm going to go into a lot more depth about this side of the story soon. It was arguably the biggest talking point in the media coverage of this case, but I personally don't want to fall into that same pattern. So for now, I want you to picture a small framed boy who looks a lot younger than his 18 years and has his fair hair cropped short. Not quite a skinhead, but definitely more of a short buzz cut. He is, by all accounts, not someone who stands out as either the cool kid or a total loner. Monet does have good friends. He's got this small crowd of boys that he hangs around with. And in the days before that manic Monday, he'd been chatting to this group about the need to do something impressive. It was his last year of school, and that week he'd been trying to sell them on a very dark plan. Monet specifically referenced the Columbine Massacre, Um, in this little chat, and then he said they should all bring weapons to school on Monday. For his part, he would bring his samurai swords and his masks, replicas of some of the masks worn by the band Slipknot. One friend, who I'll call Kid A, promised to make a bomb, and another kid, Kid B, said Monet should bring in an extra sword and mask for him. We don't know, and I'd say can't know, how seriously Mornay's friends took this discussion. Did they think he was just fooling around? That it was all fantasy? That is what is heavily implied by some reports and outright stated by others after the fact. But what teen is going to knowingly implicate himself in this? Here are some of the things we do know. On Monday morning, Mornay set off to school early, His mom usually dropped him off, but that day he decided to make his own way, probably to hide the fact that he was off to school with three swords, three masks, and a knife. Once there, he runs into Kid B, who has a sudden case of profound amnesia or something, asking Monet what's up with all the swords. They head off to the bathroom, which I think is more of a locker room setup, um, and then they're soon joined by the rest of their little circle of friends. The boys tell various versions of exactly what happened in the next few minutes. Some reporters talk to kids who say Kid A had bought that bomb, but it was defective. 
or maybe intentionally so, like a dummy bomb, because he never thought they were actually going to go ahead with this. Some mention that at least one boy put a mask on, apparently to try and appease Mornay. But then the school bell rings, and he takes it off. In the end, it's just Mornay standing there, ready to have his so-called memorable and impressive moment. He slathers on some black face paint, and dons his Slipknot-inspired mask, and then tucks the spare swords and knives into his belt and heads out, ultimately killing Jacques and injuring three more before surrendering to his teachers and the cops. It is at this point, my lovelies, where all the grown-ups and so-called serious adults, the cops, the lawyers, the journalists, lose their minds. The first breaking news on this case focuses on the samurai swords and the mask. And I get it. I'm a journalist. I know the power of a detail like that. This was always going to be a vociferously covered case because any school attack like this is legitimately a tragedy. But those details were like catnip for journalists. It gave the story the sizzle of sensationalism. This is just less than a decade after the Columbine shooting. I think even if Mornay hadn't specifically referenced it, the comparison would have been made. And like the Columbine killers Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, everyone is asking themselves, what makes a kid do something like this? And what can we blame? Soon after Mornay is arrested, the case is linked to heavy metal and then Satanism. You see, the cops had gone into Mornay's room after they had him in custody, and there they find <gasps> shock horror, candles, a homemade Ouija board, some pentagrams scribbled on stuff, and a few tarot cards. If you were a weird kid like me, that sounds like the contents of a bedside drawer. It certainly doesn't sound like anything remotely scary. But if you are from a conservative background, perhaps a Calvinist Christian church background, these things are undoubtedly the work of Satan. This becomes a theme of the news coverage, and even the court case that followed. Was Mornay possessed, people asked. Was he a Satanist? Did the music make him do it? Witnesses to the attack talk about him seeming out of it and having crazy eyes and inhuman strength, I'm inclined to say that that is what terror and trauma does to your account of an event. His parents also put out a statement saying that he was bullied and, quote, to our regret, it seems like he started experimenting with Satanism, end quote. But the evidence for this is scant, built primarily on that slipknot mask, his atheism and these cards and things found in his room. Monet himself leans heavily into the satanic narrative too. In the court record, we hear how Monet has told the story of being visited by a ghost who told him to become a satanist. But the whole satanic story for Monet feels opportunistic, manipulative. Let me tell you why. If we go back to the school that day, in the seconds after he kills and injures, he puts the sword down and witnesses say he seemed to be in a daze. He actually asks a teacher what happened. 
The statement from his parents, too, talks about something Monet must have told them, that when he put the mask on, quote, everything went dead quiet and only my body moved. I wanted to stop, but I couldn't. Then, while waiting in the office for the police, someone tells him he has killed someone, and Monet reportedly answers, I killed three people, didn't I? That's an odd statement for someone who apparently didn't know what had happened or what he'd just done minutes ago. This would be a good time, I think, to go through a little bit of the legal proceedings. Monet pleads guilty, so there isn't a lot of back and forth to report here. But there is a lengthy psych evaluation to consider. The initial psychiatrist actually recommends that he is admitted to Stirkfontein Hospital to undergo observation by a team of psychiatrists who end up declaring him fit for trial. In the True Crime South Africa episode on this case, Nicole Engelbrecht goes into a lot of details regarding the assessment done by Stirkfontein shrink Franco Fisser, who calls Monet incredibly manipulative and calculating. Nicole also talks more about Monet's home life, including some details on the creepy shit they found in his locked bedroom and the family dynamics. I'd really recommend giving that a listen. Monet may well have been bullied or even abused. He may have had a mental illness that we are unaware of. But months of psych evaluation seem to have underlined the version of him as a rational but remorseless person. And certainly that fits with the picture I have of him through this research. I suspect that he saw the threat of Satanism in the same way that he tried to fake being, quote, crazy. Just another way of escaping full accountability for his awful actions. In April 2009, he is convicted and sentenced to an effective 20 years in prison. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, South Africa had its own satanic panic. Maybe a few years later than this phenomenon swept through the rest of the world. In the early 90s, Satanists apparently lurked around every corner. This was such a common thing to hear and say. I used to tell people that my hometown was the center of the satanic church in South Africa. I have absolutely no idea where I heard that. But it was one of those odd so-called common knowledge things that we had as kids. I actually got hold of a few friends to chat about this the other day. Specifically people who had grown up in small towns with strong religious backgrounds and the notion of Satan lurking around the corner. And Sam and Karen helped me come up with a list of things that we were told were satanic growing up as tweens and teens in the 90s. In no particular order, He-Man and She-Ra, Pokemon, horoscopes, rock music, pentagrams, the Star of David, yes, really, TV games like Nintendo, the peace sign, biker mice from Mars, the evil eye, yoga, yes, you heard me, yoga, Ozzy Osbourne, Nirvana, Ouija board, Scooby-Doo, Dungeons and Dragons, Black Candles, Leverhexy, which is an Afrikaans kids TV program, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, 
and the yin-yang symbol. You couldn't sneeze without summoning Satan back then. I jest, obviously, but looking back with a bit of distance, it is bizarre to think how prevalent this thinking was and how powerfully it took hold. There are some stories as to why some in South Africa are particularly susceptible to this thinking. And that has its roots in conservatism and Christian fundamentalism of the apartheid government. This is the government who liked to ban materials based on moral values or anything that remotely criticized them. And obviously that's big scare quotes around moral values. The Satanic Bible by Anton LaVey, for example, was banned in South Africa from 1973 to 1993. It was one of 26,000 books banned between 1950 and 1990, including Catch-22 and the Hopalong Cassidy series, also films like A Clockwork Orange and The Rocky Horror Picture Show. This was the era of Christian nationalism, after all. We even had an occult division in the police force for investigating these types of crimes. That's not to say that the satanic panic was only a white issue or an Afrikaans issue, not at all. It found its way into all kinds of odd corners and cultures. But in the 90s, you've got this country emerging from an oppressive regime and parts of society grappling with the fact that the world around them has changed massively. The very state itself is declared a secular state. It's like the perfect breeding ground for satanic panic. I'm not going to be drawn into saying this religion is better than another, or that one is bollocks and the other is true. I think a lot of awful things are done in the name of religion, but I also think it is a great comfort and solace to many good people, so I will not be mudslinging in either direction. But let's remember that for certain Christians, Satan is a very real being, a powerful character with agency who is actively trying to tempt you into sin in order to lay claim to your soul. In that framework, anything outside of Christianity is a threat. I'm also not going to say that there aren't people who are participating in rituals and sacrifice, murderers who believe a devil or similar compelled them to make their kills. What I am saying is let's differentiate between correlation and causation. Listening to corn on repeat doesn't make someone go out and kill. I personally tested that for four years with a sample group of one to prove this point. And I know that Marilyn Manson is off the okay list these days, and I am totally on board with the reasons for that, hashtag believe woman. But as a teen, he was an important cultural icon to me. Because bands like that, interests like these, all of these say it's okay to be angry and confused and to feel these things. For a teen, shock rock and death metal are an outlet or a way to bond with friends who are as delightfully weird as you are. I was a nerdy drama kid who liked art and black clothing and listened to metal. My best friend was a blonde bombshell popular girl who played hockey and listened to metal. The metal doesn't determine who you are. But that whole long rambling explanation 
of moral panics and my defense of angry music is, well, it's kind of hard to fit into a newspaper headline. And nuance is a pain in the ass when you're trying to externalize blame or sell newspapers. It's much easier to talk about rapists as if they were monsters on the outskirts of society than it is to admit that most women are raped by an acquaintance or loved one. And it's simpler to be scared of a boogeyman in the shadows than to scrutinize violence and abuse in the home. Mornay was a weird kid, and he was a killer. These are not one and the same. He set out to perpetrate an attack on his school. He wanted to cause fear and panic and to hurt people. He used the word massacre repeatedly, and I guess in that way we are lucky that he didn't achieve that ambition. I don't think the devil made him do it. He knew what he was doing, and that is awful enough. Next week we are back in Krugersdorp, with a group of people who have a much stronger claim on Satanism than Mornay. No Satanists or Samurais were harmed in this episode, but I did put Samantha Render through a small tour of hell when I asked her to help me research this case. So I'm very thankful, Sam. And to my other Sam and Karen, who helped me put together the most ridiculous list of things declared Satanist in the 90s. Come hang out on social media. Tell me if you have any experience of the satanic panic yourself. It Happened Here is a Ready Freddy production. (laughs) 